Welcome to the first Building Future Cities podcast. My name is Andre Campbell and today we have an awesome guest. Victoria Lee is an urban development strategist with over 12 years of experience on nationally and internationally significant projects. From airport to innovation districts, estate regeneration and mixed-use master plans. She holds an MSc in Sustainable Urban Development from the University of Oxford and currently is the lead program manager on infrastructure at the Design Council, a UK-based charity. Victoria is also on the executive board of Oxford Urbanists and is a fellow of the RSA. Victoria is well known for promoting sustainable, smart and inclusive cities. And without any further ado, I'd like to invite her to the show. So welcome to the podcast, Victoria Thank Lee. You. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Andre. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's such a pleasure to be part of this idea and program that you started. Thank you. We both met when we were part of a UK delegation organised by the Royal Academy of Engineering to attend the China Smart Cities Workshop in the city of Hangzhou, which was in the Yuhang district in 2019. So that was last year. The world is very different. As we jump straight in, I wanted to ask you, what's your view on smart cities and kind of following that workshop and progress that smart cities have made? Well, it feels as though that event, that symposium was just yesterday. And when we met with, with the other delegates, it was such a, such a great experience to, to, be, um, to be in China and to be talking about something that was, that's really close to, to each of our hearts and work, of course. In terms of smart cities, I think one of the main points that I made on stage, you know, in front of 200 people, I believe, uh, were there, was that for me, I think cities are innately smart. And that's because people are innately smart and people and the way they use space, it's quite an intrinsic way of living. It, it, it's, it means that people are agile, people have to make use of the resources that they have, you know, whether or not it's natural resources, physical resources, social or economic. And within cities, you're kind of almost forced to just work with, with what you have. So for me, cities are really innately um, smart. And I think that smart cities as a concept builds on the fact that cities are already smart. But the way that, of course, that we speak about smart cities nowadays is, is via technology. Technology is, is adding another layer to the, to the already, for me, the, the already smart city approach. So technology is helping to make us smarter, to me, instead of just smart. For me, in terms of the progress that we've made, yes, technology has helped us with apps, with geospatial mapping, with virtual technology, smart devices, automation, etc. But I guess my, my take on this is that let's not forget that we who designed cities before, urban designers, urban planners, architects, etc., have already an innate intelligence and level of agility that technology adds another layer to. It doesn't, it doesn't add the fundamental layer of being a smart city. So we've made a lot of progress, yes, but let's not forget that human beings have, you know, by nature, have, have a major role to play in, in being smart at the outset. Following that workshop, I remember the stark contrast in approach between the UK and China. And could you speak to some of the differences that you've seen through your work between the UK and China? So I've been living in the UK for, for 20 years, but I've only traveled to China maybe about four times um, within the past 10 years. So my knowledge about China, of course, in comparison to the UK is, um, is much less. What I have gleaned from 
from the trips that I've made to China for work mainly and, and also to, to study there for, for a short period um, some time ago, is that actually the UK and China have quite a lot in common. If, if we think about the, the kind of core aspects, they are both steeped in, in heritage, in history, and they really do relish that history and that heritage, and, and that comes forward in terms of the way they think about life, they think about culture, they think about cities and people. And equally, they, they also the, another similarity is, is the connection with the arts. So that means that, it, that cultural, cultural assets, cultural buildings, the arts, the kind of physical arts in general are put forward and, and really kind of advertised in, in public space. And I think that those aspects really do kind of connect the UK and, and China. And, and, and also, finally, thinking about education. You know, education is really the cornerstone of economic development and social development in the UK, as well as it is in China. So I guess, you know, you might ask yourself, okay, so what, how does this relate to, to smart cities? For me, education heritage, the arts, have a fundamental role to play in urban planning and smart cities because it's about what we put in the center, what we prioritize. And um, as I said before, you know, for me, cities are innately smart. And some of the cities, um, some of the older cities in the UK have started off from, from education, you know, so uh, thinking about Oxford, let's say, and, 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 and the role of heritage. If you think about heritage and education coming together, Oxford as a historic city is, is, is one of the examples of, of a really innate, innately smart city because it uses its roads and its physical connections, its pedestrian connections, its cycle connections, its density, that kind of prioritization of space, um, very, very innately and very uniquely. Um, and, and it's kind of intrinsically smart. And, and, and that's kind of, that's certainly what, what I like about the city of Oxford. And I know that in many cities or parts of those big cities, so for example, in, in China, where they, um, where they really revere the kind of historic elements of the city and really try to capture that essence of walking, etc., within that historic city and, and also trying to reuse um, old warehouses now, you know, for, for art spaces. I've been to those, those places and, and that's where those cities are innately smart and uh, smart in terms of reuse. So, so a lot of connections for me between the UK and China. In terms of the, the kind of literal um, technological description about, about smart cities and the relationship between the UK and China from the symposium that, that we both went to, I got the feeling that the UK and China were taking that concept of smart cities in a very similar way, i.e. trying to focus on, on digital. China, to me, had really pushed the bar and they had, you know, as, as you know, and as you saw, had developed, you know, that city brain concept and, and China, to me, had moved on the, the concept of uh, smart cities and technology within smart cities, you know, in terms of traffic monitoring and, and automation, you know, specifically to do with roads and deliveries, etc. in a way that the UK, I don't believe, has, has not yet developed. And I, I, I wonder um, if the UK would reach to that point. But it's something that I definitely see the Chinese speedily moving ahead. Of course, because of their governance systems, they can just move that ahead much more quickly. 
with COVID-19 and as we look at cities and think about how we re-emerge into what the new normal will be, how are built environment professionals like yourself approaching this? What are you considering? I think for me, COVID-19 reminds me a lot of the 2008 economic crash. You know, that, that was a trying time, especially for the built environment industry. I remember that I, I had just left an architectural position to start up a new program, the, the one that I've mentioned in Shanghai in China. And, and I left just literally just before the crash. And when I returned, it was a completely different place. The UK was a different place. The industry was a different place. And, you know, luckily, because I had joined that, that program, I, I was kind of secured from the whole effect of the crash. But, you know, many, many of my colleagues, many of my friends, architects, designers, urban planners, many of them were were made redundant, um, very sadly. And I think that the built environment industry took quite a while to re-emerge from that. And, and in, in a way, I, I feel as though we're still trying to, to re-emerge from, from the 2008 crash. And, and now that COVID has hit, it's added another kind of level and pressure onto the uh, built environment industry in terms of what it needs to do to, to be much more self-sufficient. So for me, in terms of kind of lessons from, from the crash, I think that people within, within the built environment industry have learned to be self-sufficient. And that's what COVID teaches, um, teaches us, I think. What, what can we do to help ourselves what can we do to help others? You know, a lot, a lot of people have been furloughed uh, in this country. I believe that there's a staggering statistic. I believe it's 70% of businesses in the UK have, have asked to be on the, on the furlough program. And, and, and that's, that, that's a lot. And, and, you know, it will be really interesting actually to see what percentage of those businesses are actually built environments, businesses and, and organizations. So, I think that um, being selfish, self-sufficient, you know, in terms of your time and in terms of your skills and thinking laterally about what you can also do to, to keep yourself active and, and, and learning is really, really important. So, for example, for me, I am just doing some final CPD program to, uh, to become a fully uh, chartered surveyor. That is, that is, you know, it's something that COVID helps, helps to provide, you know, the extra time that I would have spent traveling on the tube to, to get to work in the morning. or or in the afternoon coming home in the evening, Um, that time I could now spend doing a CPD course or or two in the evening to to, to reach to that charter surveyorship goal that I've had for for some time. Awesome. It's great to see you using your time well. And, you know, you touch on a, a lot of the challenges within the UK this time. With regards to the opportunities that you see emerging from this crisis, one example, I, well, I can give you two examples. So one is I saw on LinkedIn a video of a cyclist filming outside of Westminster, so mm-hmm. outside of Parliament, and it just be completely full of cyclists just taking over the roads. Mm. And this is, you know, like in May as we started to ease out of the lockdown. So that's mm-hmm. So that was, you know you could say it's an opportunity or silver lining from from this crisis. Mm -hmm. We know that cleanliness and hygiene within our cities is going to become an even bigger priority as well. And there are opportunities for new technologies and hopefully um, sustainable chemicals um, and approaches that can be Mm -hmm. used. I was just wondering from your perspective, what are the opportunities that you're seeing emerging here? 
I think I think COVID nineteen is giving the built environment industry the push that it needed. I, I think we've always known pre COVID public spaces, um, that the amount of public space uh, within developments maybe was to to a large extent uh, insufficient, that homes were getting much, much smaller. The the actual volume of of the home, you know, the the general floor to ceiling height, you know, just everything just feeling a lot more contracted. And and to me, that really does affect mental health and well-being, you know, for for the people who live in in small spaces, in in cramped situations, you know, and, and even just thinking about students, and how many students that live in 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 these student halls and 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 I um, I, I work on and, and help to help to review some of these very big new student developments um, these days and developers are just trying to incorporate so many more people within much smaller buildings so I think that in terms of COVID nineteen great we we are we are being pushed but we always knew that we needed to do this anyway. We do need to think about in homes, for example, you know, really trying to secure that every home has private open space. That isn't always the case. It's it's also forcing us to really think about, of course, providing much more open space per development. It's also helping us, and well, at least for me, to start to think about new building typologies and new urban plans or new ways of mixed use new ways to actually think about mixed use developments and there's there's one there's one scheme that i'm thinking about in particular which i can't mention but it's an intergenerational project intergenerational meaning that um, older people live there students live there young people live there existing residents already there of all different ages um, and they're different there for different purposes different times of the day and intergenerational living, I think is something that we can think about creatively in terms of urban planning for the future, because that will mean in, in, in light of COVID, for example, that will mean that older people don't feel necessarily isolated. They can be in the same compound, you know, if they can be in the same kind of general space as younger mm-hmm. people and, and they can share open space as well, but we can design it in a way that they can have their own space, but they can still see people from across a hedge, from across a fence. They can hear that activity and, and they just, just knowing that other people are nearby, um, I think would be much more help. So the intergenerational living concept, I think, is something that as urban planners and urban designers and as developers, you know, just thinking about the model and how it might work financially, I think it is something that COVID-19 could help to promote a lot more. Yeah, that's really interesting that you talk about intergenerational housing, because obviously within the UK and and across the world right now, we have another crisis, which is a mental health crisis Mm. uh, for people that have been locked down for so long and re-emerging into the world, excavating anxiety and all manner of conditions. And it's our mental health is something that, you know, affects all of us. And it's really interesting to see how urban planning and, and and your work can impact that moving into the future, especially in, in places like the UK where, you know, we have an aging population and and we can all more or less empathize with the loneliness and uh, of, mm-hmm. of an, the older generation at this time. 
I saw that you wrote a little bit on the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, and I was wondering if you could share um, some of your thoughts around that, because obviously it's the Olympic Games is a huge, it's like, is it the pinnacle of sport? It's a huge sporting event um, mm. and, and, and attracts a lot of interest from the, the marketing industry, et cetera, mm. and the world. And especially at this time, it's being postponed. So could you give us a little bit more of an insight? Personally, I'm really glad that the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games has been postponed. Um, I think that it it's necessary, um, of course, for global health and to help reduce the spread of the virus. But I also think that it's really helpful for Tokyo to reflect on how this games could be completely different to any other games that has happened before. And to really put Tokyo on a very particular pedestal that can help the world look at sustainability and resilience much more, much more actively and, much, and, and quite differently to the way that we look at it now. So for me, Tokyo is a place that has the skills and has the culture and has the kind of way of living and thinking that it can capitalize on dealing with a major global event um, and crisis. And I don't think it just stops there. I don't think that it's just about COVID-19. I think it's also about natural disasters that Tokyo faces. So for example, my, my dad lives in, in Tokyo and he's messaged me uh, a few times to actually say there, there was a five point something um, magnitude earthquake uh, yesterday. And just hearing the kind of frequency of these earthquakes, for example, um, just makes me think that Tokyo could really help to inform and shape resilience, you know, within its city. So COVID, yes, earthquakes. And, and you know, what, what, about, what about mental health? There's so much data out there about, um, about the effects of, of, of the system of working and, and the pace of working in, in Japan and, and its effect on, on mental health, as well as the high levels of density within the city um, and how many people have to be kind of crammed into very small spaces over long periods of time, you know, as they kind of work and then go home and then work again and then travel and, and commute on. If I think about those three things, COVID-19, uh, natural disasters such as earthquakes and mental health, I mean, here are three very good examples of things of challenges, big, big challenges that, that Tokyo could look at collectively and just say, hey, you know, here's an opportunity to really show how Tokyo could be the most resilient city in the world and, and how we deal with these things. So for me, I think that Yes, it, there, there has been a delay um, with, with, the, with the Olympic Games, but this is, this is a prime, prime opportunity for Tokyo to really take on that mantle and really show the world how inventive and innovative it can be in terms of its um, urban plans and, and, and urban policies. I think that's a great example highlighting how preparation for this major sporting event, the Olympics, can spearhead a repositioning or, or enhancing the current positioning of that city in terms of you know resilience as you say especially mm -hmm. to the climate it can really focus minds and, and drive new kind of like innovations and approaches um, mm -hmm. that serve all so thank you for mm -hmm. sharing that and writing about that previously I actually there's there's um something else that that may be 
quite important, I think, in terms of um, Tokyo, the Olympics and, and policies. Resilience is, is such a, a catchphrase now. And, and I think the important thing as well to mention is that with resilience, you know, it sounds like, like mm-hmm. a tough term. Um, but I think that resilience also requires empathy. And so there's that tough side to resilience. Um, and, but then there's, there's the soft side of it, which is about being empathetic. And, and that's something that, that Tokyo and, and in terms of the, the Japanese culture um, could, really, could really build um, into, their, into their plans and policies. And I, I, for me, I, I guess um, my fascination has been um, with, with, the, with the Olympic Games, specifically with the London Olympic Games from my two masters. I basically both wrote two masters theses uh, about mm-hmm. the Olympic Games at different times. Um, and and the, the one at, at the University of Oxford focused on legacy. So I think that term legacy is something that the Tokyo Olympic Games could really think about in terms of the resilience, which is what I just mentioned. Um, and the important thing that I've learned through, through my theses um, about legacy and, and something that, that resilience could kind of take heed of is, is that the IOC, the, the International Olympic Committee, um, really needs to be on board with this concept of, for example, resilience um, within, within Tokyo. Because without the IOC, um, those, uh, those policies and that narrative and that thinking may not filter down sufficiently enough. And equally, from my thesis and from my master's um, research, it's also about really instilling that narrative and that concept about resilience and about legacy within local governments so that you get it, get it from, from the bottom up. So, so I think that those are, you know, if I were to just mention those, those, those kind of key hints about what Tokyo could do in terms of its policies and plans, it's really going top down, bottom up, and, and you will inevitably get a more resilient plan out of it because that is just the, the terminology and the language and the perceptions that will come out of, of the Olympic Games and, and, and from the planners who would be developing these proposals. And swiftly on to to touch on marketing here and contribution to the smart cities, which is what this whole podcast is trying to get at. What are your views on marketing within this, within this sector? How is it perceived? I think this is a really, it's a really good question because um, I think the term marketing seems to, it seems to, to imply or suggest that, that human beings are to some extent, unconsciously led you know that we're sleepwalking into situations if if there's if there's if there's a nice a trendy product or you know a, a good ad that that builds this um big str- big story and and we feel compelled to to be part of this and and sometimes we we knowingly we we, we knowingly follow that 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 trend or sometimes we even unknowingly follow that trend so that kind of conscious act is one that i think Urban designers and urban planners, architects, try to disassociate with it. I'd like to say, um, I, I think it, you know, if I could try and explain what I mean, mm. I think that the urban urban plan d- designers, in a way, would kind of try to promote this this unconscious nudging. You know, the the nudge factors where design could help to suggest that you might want to do something or suggest that you might want to go somewhere or, or, or sit on a particular bench or look at a particular really interesting iconic building or enter into, into a well-designed landscaped um, open space. 
So those are nudges. And I think that that's where urban designers, urban planners, architects differentiate themselves in terms of language about how they how they see um, people being nudged or persuaded or, or um, encouraged to use space. So I think that the word that um, in a way um, not directly replaces but is used very often is of course placemaking and mm-hmm. placemaking is is where that nudge happens you know it's where designers would say okay here, here, here's a nice open space that is going to be developed in the future um, and let's let's have a meanwhile use pop-up provision here or or um well, here's a, a, a new housing, housing development, and uh, the placemaking elements around it might relate to the the open space in front of it, um, how the ground floor is used, you know, whether or not it's used by a startup work, workspace and a nice cafe and and um, and a games room, for example. So all those I think are already talking about the the kind of character that that building or that space embodies without saying necessarily that it's branding. So it's suggesting something. It's encouraging people to be a part of, of a narrative, of a theme, of a story, but without being um, specifically branded, without it being specifically branded in that way. Mm. Um, so, so, so in that way, I think that the industry itself may not necessarily call it branding or marketing there there are some elements to that of course within uh within placemaking um sometimes what's what within the industry what we do try to promote is is that nudging characteristic as opposed to that conscious act of this is what you should do because it, it, it's more obvious you know it, as, as you might see in ads for example so it's it's just a different way of thinking about it and it's a different way of using language yeah, no, thank you for that insight. It's fascinating. From the, from the other side, having currently and previously worked in the marketing industry, there is a lot of conversation around how marketing can start to contribute to smart cities uh, more specifically, whether that's in the marketing of the, the technology, so IoT devices and 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 you know like came campaign messages around the introduction of new technology or more broadly around campaigns for cities so from like the mayor of london's office for example or or the branding of a new neighborhood it's interesting to see how from the marketing industry we look at it as a way of communicating a central idea changing behavior and really not so directly to the commercial kind of benefits for a developer or for, or for a certain stakeholder. So it's, I feel this is an area that it's really great to have more conversation around and, and for more people to literally have these conversations around what is the right and appropriate language to communicate the key mm. ideas, which are ultimately how do we make cities better and you know mm. for the future, right? talking about using key terms so city placemaking narrative environments i found your education at central set martins and oxford university the courses that you studied fascinating with regards to the built environment could you speak to them for us and about how they've contributed to the way that you think about cities and the built environment 
Yeah, sure. Well, I've done two masters and I think that they offered me different sides of the coin. One side of the coin from Central St. Martins, from the narrative environments degree, master's degree, was about urban design with a purpose and with a narrative behind it to make sure that places were designed to be, to feel more more welcoming for, for them to be more innately attractive for for people to, to feel a much stronger sense of ownership and and that people might want to dwell in those spaces a bit longer that was from the urban de- development uh, urban design side of the coin and then there was another side of the coin which was about the economics of of sustainable development politics yeah. behind it global trends technology, sustainability, and the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals as a whole. Um, And that knowledge came from the University of of Oxford, which was equally very, very important in terms of trying to understand how can we actually really implement these huge ambitions into uh, daily projects, daily kind of development projects. So I think that having both sides of the coin from the urban design to the urban planning and development really puts me in a position where I feel that I can think much more critically. I can think laterally. And really importantly, I can um, think about really complex topics and situations for, for major development, you know, be it huge um, green belt land development to master plans to innovation campuses to infrastructure transport infrastructure those those are just some examples of complex projects that have to deal with gives and takes so sometimes you give sometimes you take in a project because you know if, if you're developing high what are you giving back what what what, what is the developer um, or the design team giving back in terms of public benefits so you know these gives and takes are are what keeps me interested and keeps me going. I feel that with this kind of critical and, and lateral approach that I feel comfortable talking to many people and, and negotiating, you know, around, around a big table with um, senior execs, for example. So politicians, big developers, the, the kind of star architects and local community members, you know, big action groups, infrastructure companies, um, government departments, all, all of these people around the table trying to solve issues in development. And I think that the, the courses have helped me learn how to navigate really easily Um, well not easily but you know at least effectively between these and really try to hear different sides of the coin and trying to make sure that yes we 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 obtain or we we try to promote that sustainable development goal or all of those um, sustainable development goals whilst giving each of those different parties what what they want to to some degree and, and and where there's any opposition you know talking those through in in a in a productive way so for me i think that it's taught me good levels of negotiation and negotiation for me is a, is a key design skill and and i think it's yeah. it's what we use in our daily life and and you know and design skills aren't necessarily drawing and computer skills they are personal interpersonal skills and i wish that we can talk more about the the kind of social and interpersonal skills under the ban of design skills and not just what we learn in school you know in terms of art design and technology what i would like to do now is kind of take that theory that you learn and the education and bring it down to some examples of work where you've put that into practice where you've negotiated with those stakeholders and and and, and achieved some great outcomes for your city for for various projects wherever they may be could you give us some examples of where you've been able to put that into action or 
bring alive some of the design thinking that you speak to? Well, I, for me, I could think about two key projects that I've worked on. So I've, so I've just explained negotiation as, as a design skill. So I think that design thinking and, and negotiation is where some of the best projects come out from and, and, and where sustainability re- really, really lies. So in terms of these two projects, there, there was a project that I worked on that I led called Think Station, which was a series of 11 national workshops across the UK in four different cities, in which I believe about over 200 people attended, you know, from across the rail industry. And it was commissioned by, by Network Rail, but led independently by the organization that I work for, Design Council. And in terms of design thinking, I think that what we got to do with ThinkStation is got to got people to think outside of their silos and outside of their specific organizations or their specific departments and think about the future and think about what, or maybe what another organization within the rail industry might need or might want. So for example, a train operating company, for example, might might want to run the train, the rail system effectively, but may not necessarily think about how the buildings, you know, and the architecture and how that interacts with them. And, you know, what, what I think we help to do is really help them to see it from, from that side. Because, for example, there were many architects that were in attendance at these workshops. That level of dialogue and open discussion really helps each of those different parties and each of those different organizations to develop lateral thinking and to innovate about what new stations might be like in, in the future. And, and especially for, for rural stations, you know, those are the stations that, that we focused on for Network Rail. And the second project is a, quite a different project. It was for the International Finance Quarter in Jersey. We ran a, a, a sort of two-year program, uh, which, which I led. And it was really trying to understand what were the issues that were being faced about the current, you know, at that point in time, the, 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 the current international finance quarter master plan and where was it falling down? So, you know, the, that master plan, it didn't really promote walking. It promoted more car use. The, the buildings were quite dispersed. The, the kind of sense of place we felt um, could have been a lot stronger you know, because Jersey and St. Helier, its capital, does have a, such a strong history and identity and feeling towards it. And there's, and there's so much kind of hanging on, on the economic sector. And, and we wanted to help the, the government to, to think laterally about how could the city be more economically viable, but through social activities and through other uses, you know, from housing to retail to leisure facilities etc and we did that through through design thinking i.e taking them back to the original question you know so why why was there a master plan put in place in the first place and what were the elements of that brief and how do we actually get back to that point that vision that that strong vision that you had and how could we create that vision into something in the future so it's in a way doing what what we say in my in my work at design council you know the double diamond effect which is being at the center and taking the time to go backwards. And then once you've just defined what was the core issue behind, behind the brief and, and, the, and the core objective, then you can 
reasonably and effectively move forward again with, with a really um, innovative and, and new approach. So we help them, for example, to engage with hundreds of key stakeholders, local people, and then um, also help them with the brief development for the new master plan, which was really exciting and which we've just completed. So that's a kind of full 360, you know, taking a, a government and, and taking the development corporation backwards a little bit in order to move them swiftly forwards. And, and, that, and that is what design thinking means to me it is it is literally about that level of curiosity and willingness to go to go back and taking those risks but those risks have great rewards thereafter and, and i think that the, that both of these projects show really good leaders you know within within governments and within government departments willing to take that risk that some people might might think but just being much more curious and wanting to engage and then ending up with much better results thereafter. Thank you for taking us through those two examples to bring this to life. I know for somebody who is not from the built environment industry, it really helps to understand how you're applying these concepts of design thinking and how you're bringing these ideas around placemaking narrative environments into the day-to-day of government planning or the planning of network rail. What are your hopes for the industry moving forward? For those that don't know, I know you have a fascinating heritage. It would be great to just provide a little bit of your hopes for the industry. Well, it's a podcast, so you know, <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm proud to, to, to have a mixed heritage. I'm proud to have lived in different countries. I'm, I'm proud to, um, to be from a small island called Trinidad in the Caribbean. And I'm proud to be a Londoner and I'm proud to, to live in the UK and have this, you know, this fantastic opportunity and also to be, to be in a position where I can help other people. So in terms of my hope, I would really like to be that person that helps other people, other people like me who have come from different places, who may be uh, from different cultures, may have different belief systems or may come from different socioeconomic backgrounds um, and to try and, you know, elevate anyone who wants a chance, you know, anyone at all. And, and I think that once you have the ambition and once you have the drive and, you know, once you think, you know, also like a, like a, like a designer, you know, in terms of thinking laterally and critically about things, then, then I think you, you can succeed. And, and I just think that the framework in which we live, the kind of social framework could allow for that a lot more. And, you know, starting with, with the workplace, I, I, I think that there are great movements in that respect, but there's still a long way for us to go. You know, just even thinking about the gender pay gap, you know, that's an issue that, that still has to be addressed, much less for the other, um, the other issues, you know, and challenges that we face in terms of getting more diverse backgrounds and people within a room to innovate and create and really elevate themselves within the the industry and the, specifically also the the built environment industry so you know if, if if there's something that i can do in that respect you know i'd i'd, I'd, I'd love to do it you know i try and promote it in, in the work that i do in any case and i think that there there are so many talented people out there you know within the uk globally that have the opportunity that that we can help them to make those dreams you know a, a reality and, and that's what I'd love to do what I think we should all do um, even you know throughout our lives. As we come towards the end of the podcast two more questions I want to ask you. I wanted to get your idea around the role 
that you believe that design and marketing, <laughs> however you define <laughs> it, could play within, you know, within building future cities? Do you feel there is a role there? And if so, what could it be? Yes, I, I, I certainly think that design is such a broad term that I've kind of encompassed marketing, you know, into that as well, placemaking per se. But it, it, it certainly, design certainly has a role to play because it's about longevity. With design comes that curiosity about a place and about people that makes places and activities long term you know and 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 people want to continue to go there people want to continue to integrate with each other people are consistently interested in how that place is evolving that's why i think that that design is 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 truly fundamental and 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 it and if you dig deeper it it really comes down to psychology and and narrative because we're constantly telling ourselves stories about the places that we go to, the people who we meet. And this is how we learn as human beings. You know, we learn by, by telling ourselves stories. And everyone is doing this at, you know, at the same time. So the stories that we tell ourselves become our, our kind of internal reality. And in terms of narrative, those stories that designers tell themselves about the world play out in real space. You know, you can actually see, feel and touch it. You can smell it. You can, you can touch the walls and you can walk up the stairs of it. Um, and that's what makes designers so special because the way they see the world is actually how the world becomes and how other people experience it. And this is where I think that designers could play a much bigger role in governance in the governance in political you know p- political activities to really try to help shape how cities are governed and also how cities operate and 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 try to think help us as a, as as a nation to think more creatively about about the way we do things so certainly i think that design and governance is probably an area that needs to develop a lot more um, in my mind and and certainly if we're thinking about future cities that that's definitely a role that that could be developed a lot more thank you for that and it's great to see how large the role is for design in the future of our cities I think your passion for the built environment, for design thinking, for placemaking and the way that you've approached it is inspirational And it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening will find inspiration from the way that you approach this topic and the work that you're doing. So I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And we look forward to hearing more about what you have planned in the future. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks, Andre. And, and, you know, I really hope that the Building Future Cities podcast continues to grow from strength to strength because, you know, it's these types of discussions, I think, are, are really needed. And, and if there's any way that I can help, I'm happy to. More than grateful. So thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you for listening to the Building Future Cities podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to subscribe and check out our upcoming interviews with creative leaders building future cities. Speak soon.